All right, well, we're there in Matthew chapter 28, and I'd like you to go with me to the book of Acts just real quickly. If you're there in Matthew, you're just going to turn a few pages over past the book of Mark, past the book of Luke, past the book of John, into the book of Acts, Acts chapter number one. And this morning, we are not only celebrating the resurrection of Christ, we are also beginning a brand new series called Let Us Reason Together. And while you go to Acts, I'd like to read for you out of Isaiah chapter one, uh, just to read to you from the text that we get the title for the series. You go to Acts one, I'll read to you out of Isaiah chapter one and verse 18. The Bible says this, come now, and this is God speaking. He says, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And in Isaiah 118, we have this invitation from God. He says, come now and let us reason together. That word reason or reasoning is defined as the action of thinking about something in a logical or sensible way. And I want you to uh, understand as we begin this series and as we go through this series in the next several weeks is that our faith is founded in truth that is reasonable. Our faith is founded in truth that is logical and sensible. And what we mean by that is that our faith, our beliefs, the things that we believe as New Testament Christians, we're not afraid of that going up against logic and reason. In fact, we in, we're invited by God to reason with Him in regards to these things. For that reason, over the next three weeks, we're going to spend some time reasoning together some of the main major beliefs of Christianity. Today, we're going to talk about the reasoning the resurrection, and next week, we'll learn about reasoning the Word of God and the Bible. And I, and I want to encourage you, if you've, if you've had doubts about the Word of God, if you've ever made this statement or had somebody make this statement to you and you weren't sure how to answer it, when someone says to you about the Bible, well, that's just a book written by man, next week, we're going to talk about and we're going to prove how we know that the Bible was not written by man and could not have been written by man. And it'll be logical reasons. It'll be reasons that will make sense. Then we'll end the series talking about creation and why we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you're there in Acts 1, and today we're going to be talking about the resurrection. I want you to notice what the book of Acts and how the book of Acts begins. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, and I, and I want you to understand something about the Bible. Today, uh, we as believers look at the Bible, and we call it the Bible, and, and praise the Lord for the Bible. I love the Bible, and, and even the New Testament. We will look at the writings of the New Testament Christians, and, and we see it as uh, the, the New Testament scriptures. But what you need to understand is that when the writers of the New Testament wrote the writings that ended up becoming the New Testament, they were not sitting down to write the Bible. For example, the book of Acts was written by a man, a physician, by the name of Luke. He also wrote the gospel according to Luke. When Luke sat down to write the book of Acts, he did not sit down and say, well, now I'm going to write scripture. Now I'm going to write the Acts according to the apostles. He actually began by just writing, and what he was doing was he was writing a letter to a friend. Now, we believe that the Holy Spirit used him and that the Holy Spirit spoke through him and that God gave us scripture through his writing. But when Luke sat down to write, he basically sat down to write a letter to a friend. Let me show that to you. Acts chapter 1, look at verse 1. Notice what Luke says, he says, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus. Now he's writing to his friend Theophilus, and he talks about the fact that he had written him earlier. He said the former treaties in reference to the book of Luke, what we now call the gospel according to Luke. He said, I wrote you the book of Luke, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. He said, I wrote you that former letter uh, to you, my friend, a personal letter to you, my friend, Theophilus, that you might know what Jesus began both to do and teach. Notice verse 2. Until the day in which he was taken up after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandment unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Notice verse 3. He says, to whom also he showed himself alive. I want you to notice what Luke is writing to his friend here, Theophilus. He says, hey, I wrote to you about Jesus of all that he began both to do and teach. And he said, I wrote to you in an orderly account until the day that he was taken up until his ascension. Verse three. And he says, to whom also he showed himself alive. And I want you to notice what he says, whom he showed himself alive after his passion. Don't miss these words by many infallible proofs. 
He says, there were many infallible. The word infallible means incapable of making a mistake, incapable of being wrong. He says there was proofs that prove the resurrection of Christ, that make it an an infallible truth. He said, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So when we talk about the reasoning the resurrection or why the resurrection is a reasonable belief. It's reasonable because of the many infallible truths. And what I'd like to do this morning, I would like to give you three logical arguments, three reasonable arguments for the resurrection of Christ. Now, before I do that, though, let me just read to you or quote to you Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 says this. You don't have to turn there. You're in the book of Acts. In fact, I would like you to Go back to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1. If you go backwards, you'll go past the book of John into the book of Luke. And while you turn there, let me read to you from Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 says this, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The Bible says that without faith we cannot, but without faith it is impossible to please him, to please God. That we can't even come to God unless we believe that he is. So this sermon and this sermon series is not meant to take away from the idea of faith, because the truth is that you must come to God in faith. But here's what I know about you. You have faith in something. You have beliefs in something. If you say, well, I don't believe in Christ. Yes, but you believe in something. And there are some things that you do not understand that you cannot necessarily prove. You can't prove that the earth was created millions of years ago by a big bang explosion. You really have to accept that by faith. You say, well, I read that in in a book. Well, you know what? I read what I believe in a book, too. And, and, and you believe it by faith, you accept it by faith, and here's all I'm telling you, what you have to come down to is what is reasonable, what is logical. And our faith, and here's all I'm telling you, is that our faith will stand up to reason, and our faith will stand up to logic. So I'd like to give you three, I'd like to give you three arguments, three arguments as to why the resurrection is reasonable. And if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write these down on the back of the course of the week. There's a place for you to write down some notes. You can jot these things down. You can study them out for yourself. And uh, you, you can, uh, uh, that way you can share them with someone else or you can look them up yourself. Now, let me say this. If, if, if you brought a guest, if you have someone with you and they're your guest, I want everyone to be able to see what we're going to see from scripture. We're going to flip a few pages. So if you're sitting next to a guest, maybe you can help them get to the different passages so that they can see it because because seeing is believing, and we don't want to just, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it from the word of God. So three reasons, three reasons why the resurrection of Christ is reasonable. Reason number one, the resurrection is reasonable because of the eyewitness accounts. The resurrection is reasonable because of the eyewitness accounts. I want you to notice and I want you to understand that throughout the New Testament, when we are told of the resurrection, we are not told to believe the resurrection because the Bible says so, although the Bible does say so. We are told to believe in the resurrection because eyewitnesses documented what they saw. They wrote it down for future generations and those letters, those documents, those testimonies uh, ended up being put together and became what you and I know as the New Testament. But it was letters written by friends to other friends telling them of what they had seen and what they had experienced. Notice Luke chapter 1. We read the first part of Acts chapter 1, the second letter that Luke wrote to his friend Theophilus. Let's look at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, the first letter that he wrote to Theophilus. Notice what he says. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order, notice what he says, he says, to set forth in order a declaration of those things that are most surely believed among us. He says, there are many people who have taken in hand, who have made it their uh, task to put in order the things that we believe. Notice verse 2. He says, even as they delivered them unto us, which, notice what he says. He says, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses. And here's what Luke would say. Luke would say, I was not one of the original uh, apostles. I was not one of the original disciples. In fact, I, I kind of got uh, brought into this thing uh, uh, later. I heard about the resurrection of Christ, and I didn't necessarily believe it, or I didn't necessarily understand it. I didn't really know if it was true. And here's what Luke says. 
as he writes this letter to Theophilus, he said, I went around and interviewed the eyewitnesses. Notice verse 2, he says, Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write unto thee. Here's what he says. He says, I interviewed the eyewitnesses. I looked at their credibility. I looked at the circumstances. When I understood it, he said, when I had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know. Notice what he says in verse 4. That thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And I want you to notice that Luke does not write to his friend Theophilus and he says, I want you to believe in Jesus Christ because I said so. Or I want you to believe in Jesus Christ because there's a myth or a story. He said, I'm telling you what I know is true because I sat down and spoke with the eyewitnesses who experienced it, who saw it, and now I'm writing and I'm documenting it and I'm declaring it to you so that you would know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And here's what I'd like you to know. You're there in Luke. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You're in Luke. You're going to go past John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Here's what I would like you to know. This is a theme throughout the New Testament. The theme throughout the New Testament is to have faith in Christ. And you might ask, well, why should we have faith in Christ? Here's why we should have faith in Christ. Because eyewitnesses saw him rise from the dead. There were people who saw him die. They saw him buried. And three days later, they saw him resurrected. A few days later, they were having breakfast with him on a beach. A few days later, they witnessed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament account of the resurrection was documented by eyewitnesses. And this is a theme throughout the New Testament. Are you there in 1 Corinthians 15? Look at verse number 1. If you guys can just turn me down a hair, I'd appreciate that. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1, you have Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Again, this is a letter. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a group of believers, a church at Corinth. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, the word gospel means the good news, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved. He said, he said, I preach to you this message. You receive this message. You stand on this message. You were saved by this message. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain. Verse 3. What's the message? For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which, also, that which I also received. Notice there's three parts to this message. How that, number one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two, verse 4. And that he was buried. And number three, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now I want you to notice, Paul says, here's the message that I preach. Here's the message that you receive. Here's the message by which you stand. Here's the message that saves you. It is the gospel. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says he, was, uh, he, he died and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. But I want you to notice, he doesn't end there. He doesn't say, just believe it because I said so. He doesn't say, just believe it because this is what you should believe. Notice verse 5. Then he gives them the proof of the eyewitnesses. Verse 5, he says, and that he, talking about the resurrected Christ, was seen of Cephas. That's Simon Peter. He says, look, not only did he rise from the dead, but he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And after that, he was seen, notice, of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James. That's referring to his half-brother, who, by the way, did not believe on him during the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's interesting when you say the Gospels, his brothers did not believe on him. Even while he was performing miracles, even while he was teaching great truth, they did not believe on him. But when they watched him die, and then they met him resurrected, they became believers. He says, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, verse 8, he was seen of me. Paul says, I saw the resurrected Christ. And if you remember Paul, 
was a persecutor of the church. He was not a believer. But when he saw the resurrected Christ, he says, and last of all, he was seen of me. He says, also as one born out of due time, he says, I was late to the party. But I saw him. I'm an eyewitness. And, and, and the Bible and the New Testament gives us this idea that you're not just to believe in, in, in Christ just because we said so, that you are to believe in Christ because the New Testament really actually is an account, a declaration, a collection of documents of people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, who documented what they saw. Now, you're there in 1 Corinthians. I'd like you to go to 1 John chapter 1. If you start at the end of the New Testament, where the book of Revelation is, and you head backwards, you're going to go past Revelation, past Jude, which is just one chapter, past 3rd and 2nd John, which are uh, one chapter as well, and then you'll find the book of 1 John. Towards the end of the New Testament, you'll find these, uh, you'll find 1 John. Uh, so you're going to go backwards, Revelation some theories out there against the resurrection. People who do not believe in Christianity, who do not believe in the resurrection of Christ, they've got some theories as to how Jesus or the story of, of the resurrection came about or uh, came, came to be. One theory is the stolen body theory. And the stolen body theory states this, that the story of the resurrection came about after the body of Jesus was stolen by his followers, and rumors were circulated that he had resurrected. So basically, the, the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, stole the body, buried it somewhere else. Then rumors began to circulate that the body was missing. The body was not in the tomb. And, and, and then people began to say, well, he must have resurrected. He must have resurrected. And that just because the body was missing... People assumed a resurrection, but there really was not a resurrection. And by the way, the Bible actually uh, tells us that this is something that happened. And I, I asked you to go to First John there. I want you to be in First John. We're going to look at it. Keep your finger right there, but go back to Matthew, Matthew 28, where we read to begin the service. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. It should be fairly easy to find. Keep your finger there in First John. We're going to go right back to it. But go to Matthew 28 and look at verse number 11. Matthew 28 and verse number 11. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 28, 11. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. So remember, there was a watch given by the Roman Empire to protect the tomb, to protect against this very thing, that the disciples might steal the body and claim a resurrection. Soldiers were put on guard to protect the tomb from this very thing, from the followers of God, from the followers of Jesus taking the tomb. But then he resurrected and they come in and they tell the story. Notice verse 12. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers saying, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. Now there's a few issues with this problem. If you're familiar with Roman uh, history, or if you're just familiar with the New Testament, you remember that whenever a guard allowed a prisoner to go, their life was taken in place of the prisoner. Remember the Philippian jailer? When uh, God performs that miracle and all the doors open in the jail, he's getting ready to kill himself. Why? Because he thinks that all the prisoners have escaped. And Paul has to stop him and say, no, we're all here. Do, do thyself no harm. And the story that these guards would just be sleeping and allow the disciples to steal the body of Christ when that's what they were told to guard against is not a logical, uh, is not a logical story. It doesn't make sense that these guards would fail. Why were they all sleeping at the same time? Don't they have watches? Don't they take breaks? Don't they have times when one sleeps and one stands guard? I mean, isn't that just normal, reasonable, logical uh, military guard strategy? Notice verse 13. Saying, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So he said, look, if the governor hears about it, we'll protect you. Because we know that if you say that you're sleeping on the job and you let a prisoner go, even worse, a dead one, that's going to really not be good for your career. In fact, the, you're going to be worthy of death. Look at verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And you know what? It's commonly reported amongst those who criticize the Bible today. They will say, well, uh, it was, it, they stole the body. 
The disciples stole the body, they buried it somewhere else, people saw an empty tomb, and they assumed the resurrection, which is a silly argument to make. Look, if you saw an empty room, an empty tomb, would you assume a resurrection? If you saw an empty tomb, wouldn't you assume that somebody moved the body? Wouldn't you assume that somebody stole the body? I don't think that you would walk into an empty tomb and say, well, he must have resurrected. No, because here's the thing. People expect dead people to do what dead people do, which is stay dead. The assumption would have been that somebody stole the body. You say, well, then how did the story of the resurrection go forth? Here's why. Because it wasn't just an empty tomb. Now, look, the empty tomb played a role, but it was because people by the hundreds were coming out into the community and saying, I have seen the risen Savior. Paul would say that even 500, 500 at one time saw the resurrected Christ. And here's what's interesting. They say they saw him. They say they ate with him. They say they touched him. They say they felt him. Another theory against the resurrection is the hallucination theory. The hallucination theory states that the disciples were infatuated cult followers of Christ who went through mental strains and trauma when they saw their cult leader killed before their eyes. These mentally unstable disciples then hallucinated and thought they saw the resurrected Christ. Basically, they had visions where they thought they saw Jesus and they didn't actually see Jesus. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that they actually touched him. Are you there in 1 John 1? Look at verse 1. Notice what John would write in his account. He would say this, That which was from the beginning... Now, if you're familiar with the Word of God, that should remind you of John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with Christ. The Word word was with God. Excuse me. The Word was God. All things were made by Him. He goes on to say that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. John 1.1 says, and that which was from the beginning. Notice what he says. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Notice, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the Word of life. And it's kind of silly, but they'll point to, they'll say, there's modern day's examples of this. They'll point to Elvis Presley, right? And they'll say Elvis Presley was, was, was a, 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 a pop icon and, and pop culture, loved him. He was the king of rock and roll, and people loved him, and they were infatuated by him. And after the death of Elvis Presley, many people came out, and they, saw, they thought they saw him. They saw him at a gas station. They saw him at a diner. They saw him at a restaurant having lunch with Tupac or whatever, you know. They saw him uh, here and they saw him there. And they'll say, see, people can go through, can be mentally unstable and, 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 and think they saw something that they didn't see. Now, here's the thing. Though it is true that there are many Elvis sightings and though it is true that it might be easy for us to dismiss 500 separate Elvis sightings over the last 30 and 40 years. Here's what would make the difference for Elvis. Not if there were 500 Elvis sightings, but if 500 people said they saw Elvis and they touched Elvis and they had lunch with Elvis all at the same time. See, the the reliability of the resurrection does not fall on the fact that we have faith in faith. And please understand this. The Bible does not call for you to have faith in faith. The Bible calls for you to have faith in Christ. And that is not a blind faith. Even though the Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, we are not asked to blindly follow Christ. We are told that there were eyewitnesses who witnessed his resurrection. And people will say, they'll say, I'll believe the Bible when you prove it to me scientifically. And you know, those of us that study the Bible and know the Bible, we kind of roll our eyes and we think, you think you, think you sound smart, but you, you, don't, you kind of sound like an idiot. <laughs> you know, or if you can prove to me the Bible scientifically, you know, and, and if you're familiar with the scientific method or the scientific model of, of proving things, you know that the scientific method, right, it's that scientifically you should be able to make a prediction, have a theory. You should be able to test that prediction. You should be able to uh, have a result that is measurable. And then you should be able to replicate it. The scientific method is you should be able to make a prediction. You should be able to test it, uh, predict it, test it, verify it, and then do it again. That's the scientific method. Here's what's interesting. You do not prove the accuracy of history through the scientific method. You don't, you don't prove whether something actually happened through the scientific method. Here's the problem with history. You can't predict it and test it and replicate it. 
Okay, the way that you prove history is not through the scientific method. The way that you prove history is the same way that a lawyer would prove the eyewitness account in a court case. You look at the sources. You look at the credibility of the sources. You look at circumstances around those testimonies to see whether there are uh, credible circumstances that co- would corroborate the story. That's how you determine whether something actually happened in history. And here's all I'm telling you. By even our judicial standards today, if you had 500 people show up to a court case, hold their right hand in the air, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and say, we saw the resurrected Christ, that would stand up in court. It's reasonable. You say, well, you're not proving. I still have to believe by faith. I would never take that away from you. You have to believe. Uh, you have to have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. All I'm telling you, it is a reasonable faith. Amen. Say, why is the resurrection reasonable? It's reasonable. It's reasonable because of the accounts of the eyewitnesses. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. You're there in 1 John. Just the book right before that is 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. 2 Peter 1.16 says this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. The word cunningly means a clever or, deceit, or, or clever or deceitful. Devised means carefully thought out or planned. A fable is a story. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. Notice Peter doesn't say, Hey, believe in the story because of the story. He doesn't say, Believe in faith because of faith. He says, No, believe in Christ. And he says, this is not a cunningly devised fable. This is not a clever or deceitful, carefully thought out story that we made up. He says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made note unto you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we as Christians do not believe in having faith in faith. We believe in having faith in Christ. And we believe in having faith in Christ because the resurrection of Christ is a reasonable assumption. It's a reasonable belief. You say, why is it reasonable? Well, because of the eyewitnesses' account. And let me say this. The New Testament was written. The New Testament was written by eyewitnesses who documented what they experienced during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. And I realize we're moving to a lot of passages, but I, I need you to kind of stay with us because I want you to get all of these things. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6 says this. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6. We were just there, but I want you to notice what Paul says. He talks about the different eyewitnesses. He says that the disciples saw him and Peter saw him. He said, I saw him. He said, there was 500 people that saw him at once. First Corinthians 15 and verse 6, he says this. After that, he was seen of about 500 brethren at once. Notice what he says. Of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. He says he was seen of 500 brethren at once, and he says, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. And here's what I want you to know about the New Testament. It was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. He says there was 500 people that saw him, Peter, uh, Paul would say, and you can go talk to them yourself. In fact, that's what Luke did. He said they are alive right now. So it's not that the Bible was written decades and hundreds or thousands of years after the fact. It was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And by the way, there was a missing body in the tomb. It would have been easy for the Pharisees to, when this rumor began to be spread, when people began to come into the streets of Jerusalem saying, I've seen the Savior, I've seen Jesus resurrected, I've seen the resurrection. It would have been easy for them to open the tomb, produce the body and say, there he is. Okay, so the, the, the missing body definitely plays a part, but even more than that is the eyewitness account. And it was an eyewitness account that was written down by eyewitnesses during, during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. He says, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. Now go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. First book in the New Testament. It should be fairly easy to find. Matthew 24. And you say, okay, pastor. Well, here's the thing. Paul says that there was 500 witnesses that saw him and that they all remain until this day. But then we have to trust Paul for that. We have to trust Paul, you know, to, to know that it's true. How can we know that the Bible wasn't written decades later or hundreds of years later, the New Testament? How do we know that it was written during the uh, time of, by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses? Well, here's one proof that's outside of the New Testament writers that I'd like to just bring to your attention, and it is this. In 
the New Testament, we have a documented prophecy and prediction of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find it in Matthew 24 and verse 1. Notice what it says. Matthew 24, verse 1. And he went out and departed from the temple. Notice, Jesus and his disciples are at the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. So they're touring the temple and the temple site. Notice verse 2. And Jesus said unto them, here's a prediction or a prophecy from Christ. He says, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown out. Now, Jesus gives a very specific prophecy that the temple that they were looking at would be destroyed and that there would not be left one stone upon another. Here's what's interesting. Jesus made that prediction sometime between 30 A.D. and 33 A.D. The temple was destroyed by a Roman general by the name of Titus in 70 A.D. The prediction of Jesus Christ was fulfilled exactly the way he said it would. say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Here's what that has to do with. That fulfillment is not documented in the New Testament. Now, if, if the New Testament writers were writing Scripture after 70 A.D., and they failed to mention the fact, hey, by the way, remember Jesus predicted the temple was going to be destroyed? Well, guess what? It just got destroyed last week in your face. Right? If, it's such a clear win It's such a clear proof of Jesus being who he said he was that if the people who were writing the New Testament failed to mention that Jesus out of his own mouth made a prediction of the temple and 30 years later it came to be, if they failed to mention that fact, then they were really not good founders of a faith. You say, well, why would they not mention it? Because look, if Jesus predicts something and it happens, you would think that they would tell us about it. I mean, it'd be a huge failure for them not to say, it happened. Just what he said. Say, well, pastor, why isn't it in the New Testament? Here's why it's not in the New Testament. Because by the time the temple was destroyed, the New Testament was already completed. It's not documented in the New Testament because the New Testament was already done. And that would tell us that the New Testament was completed by 70 A.D. Not 100 years, not 200 years, not 300 years after Christ but 30 years after Christ, which affirms what Paul said, that it was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And that doesn't take away from faith. It just should help you understand that our faith is reasonable. Our faith is logical. You say, why believe in the resurrection? Well, it's a reasonable belief. You say, why? Because of of the eyewitness accounts. But there's other reasons. Let me give you another one. Go to Acts chapter number 7. Acts chapter 7. I'm just trying to give you some reasons why the resurrection is reasonable. One is because of the account of the eyewitnesses. Here's the second reason. Because of the martyrdom of the disciples. Because of the fact that the people who rushed the streets of Jerusalem to tell their story of a resurrected Christ all died for what they believed. Let me show you that in Scripture. Acts chapter 7 verse 55. Acts chapter 7, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Notice what the Bible says. Acts chapter 7 and verse 55 says this, But he, talking about Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they, talking about the Jews, cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran uh, upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him, talking about Stephen, and witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when they had said this, he Uh, the Bible says he fell asleep, referring to the fact that he died. Stephen was the first martyr that was documented in the New Testament after the uh, ascension of Christ. Go to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, look at verse 1. Acts chapter 12 and verse 1 says this, "Now Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex. The word vex means to cause distress. He says, to vex certain of the church. Notice verse 2. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. One of the original twelve. James, the brother of John. 
We've been reading a little bit of the writings of John. He was put to death by Herod for his belief and for his unwillingness to recant the fact that he saw the resurrected Christ. Look at verse 3. And because he saw it please the Jews, he, Herod, proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him for four, uh, to four quarantorians of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. And the Bible here in the book of Acts documents for us that there was people in the early church who died for their beliefs. You say, well, I don't trust the Bible. Okay, well, secular history tells us that every single one of the disciples died as a martyr except for John, who lived to be an old man because he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but the history tells us that Peter was executed in Rome and he was sentenced to a crucifixion. He asked to be crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die the same death of the resurrected Savior who he saw resurrected. And he was given permission and he was killed as a, by crucifixion upside down. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Secular history tells us that every one of the disciples died for their belief in and their message of a resurrected Christ. And people say this, well, Pastor Jimenez, don't people die for a lie all the time? And that's true. People die for lies all of the time. But people generally don't die for lies that they made up. See, if my wife and I were to take our children from birth and teach them a lie, if we were to teach them that there is a unicorn on the moon and that unicorn is God, And we we taught them that from the day of their birth, and we just brainwashed them with that idea. It is possible that my kids would die for that lie, because people do die for lies that they think are true. But you think I die for the lie of the unicorn on the moon when I'm the one who made that story up? See, the disciples all died. They all died for one message. Study the book of Acts. One message because they blitzed the streets of Jerusalem and said, you killed him. We saw him resurrected. And you will be held accountable by God. For that message, they were willing to die. And and you say, well, yeah, but I still need faith. And I would never take that away from you. All I'm telling you is this, that the fact that these men were willing to die to be tortured for their belief. They never recanted. They never took back. The fact that they would make up a story and then die for it does not make reasonable sense. Because people die for lies all of the time, but they do not die for lies that they made up. You say, well, is the resurrection reasonable? Is it a reasonable belief? Yeah, it's reasonable. You say, why? Because of the account of the eyewitnesses. You say, it's reasonable. Why? Because of the martyrdom of the disciples. Let me give you a third reason. You're there in Acts. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Here's a third reason why the resurrection is reasonable, and here's why. Because of the early and rapid growth of Christianity. Because of the early and rapid growth of Christianity. And you might say, well, I don't really believe that the New Testament was written by, uh, by 70 AD. You know, you told that story about the temple and whatever. That doesn't necessarily prove anything. But here's what you can't argue. You cannot argue the fact that Christianity experienced rapid growth early in history. You're there in Acts 2. Look at verse 41. And when they that gladly received his word were baptized, this is 50 days after the ascension of Christ, 90 days after the death and resurrection of Christ, And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayer. The Bible tells us that 90 days after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there were 3,000 believers in Jerusalem who believed and publicly were baptized to affirm their belief in a resurrected Christ. Look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. You're there in chapter 2. Just flip over a couple pages. Acts chapter 4 and verse 1 says this, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people. Notice what they were grieved about. That they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was not eventide. Verse 4, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000 believers. 5,000 Christian. 5,000. So in Acts 2, we have 3,000. In Acts 4, we have 5,000. Look at verse 31, same chapter. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And I just want you to notice verse 32 there. It says, and the multitude of them that believe. Multitudes are believing. Look at Acts 5 and verse 12. Acts 5 and verse 12. And by the hand of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the resters, no man joined himself to them, but the people magnified them. Verse 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. Go to Acts 21 and verse 18. I'm just, I'm just highlighting for you the fact that the book of Acts tells us that there was thousands of people. Thousands of people that were believing on Jesus Christ, that were believing, that were being converted, that were being saved, and that were being baptized. Uh, Paul would come back to Jerusalem after his missionary journeys. He would come back to Jerusalem. He would eventually be uh, imprisoned by the Roman Empire and sent to go see Caesar. But on his way back to Jerusalem, James, the half-brother of Jesus, met him. Now the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem, a man who did not believe on Christ during his ministry, but believed on him after the resurrection. And I want you to notice what James says to Paul on his way back to Jerusalem. Acts 21, verse 18. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly the things that God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Notice verse 20, Acts 21, 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. The book of Acts documents the fact that there was thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of believers. Rapid and early growth of Christianity. You say, well, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Because one of the theories against the resurrection of Christ is the hero legend myth theory. Here's what the hero legend myth theory states. It states that the account of the resurrection came about after the story of Jesus over decades and even centuries of being told and retold had been exaggerated and embellished. Here's a, let me just read to you a little bit from an article called How Great Myths and Legends Were Created. This is by a man named James Bonnet, and he actually attacks the resurrection of Christ in this article. But let me just read to you what he says about how the myths and legends are created. He says, the great myths and legends were not authored by individuals. They were stories and are today, uh, 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 stories are, uh, excuse me, they are stories that today, that, oh, good night. The great myths and legends were not authored by individuals the way stories are today. That's what I meant to say. But were evolved naturally and instinctively by unconscious processes in oral tradition. Even if they started out as a made-up or true story, revelations or dreams, they still ended up for long periods of time in oral traditions and that became the principal dynamic behind their creation. The process went something like this. It began with a real or imagined incident or event that was uh, worth repeating, something so intriguing that we were compelled to repeat it. It was passed along by word of mouth from person to person and from generation to generation until it had been told and retold millions of times and existed in a hundred different versions around the world. Each time a story is retold, it changes. This is due to certain natural but curious tendencies of the mind. The tendency, for instance, to remember things that make a strong impression and to forget things that don't impress us very strongly. There is also a tendency to exaggerate or minimize, to glorify or to enable to idealize or vilify. And then he goes on to say this. He says, After only 40 to 80 years, the oral traditions of Jesus had made him the result of a virgin birth and had risen him from the dead. So he, what he's saying is this. He says, Jesus became God because after centuries and decades of the story being told and retold, it was embellished, it was exaggerated, 
He never actually resurrected from the grave. People just began to tell that story, and that's, that's how it became to be. Here's an article from Scientific America called, What Would It Take to Prove the Resurrection? I'll just read one line for you. But the writer says this, Maybe they, talking about the disciples, reported only feeling Jesus in spirit, and over the decades their testimony was altered to suggest that they saw Jesus in the flesh. So this hero legend myth teaches that Jesus was just a good guy. He was a prophet. He was a great teacher. People loved him, and then he died, and he stayed dead. But over the years and over the decades and over the centuries, the story was told and retold, told and retold, told and retold. It was exaggerated and it was embellished. And eventually, eventually, and they'll sometimes say it was Constantine who uh, started the Roman Catholic Church in 312 AD. It was actually Constantine and his zealous monks who actually turned Jesus into deity and put forth the story of the resurrected Christ. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that myths and legends take a long time to develop. But the Bible tells us, the book of Acts tells us, that there was hundreds and thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of believers early, early in the history of Christianity. And you might say, well, I have to trust the book of Acts for that. What if the book of Acts is exaggerating? Okay, well, how about this? Secular history tells us that there was early and rapid growth of Christianity. You say, prove it. Okay, I'll prove it to you. Do you know a guy by the name of Nero? He was a Roman emperor. Nero goes down in history as being the first Roman emperor to systematically and strategically persecute Christianity. He organized a persecution against Christianity because Christianity had grown so much it was growing out of control. He needed to get a handle on it, so he began to persecute Christians. Nero set Rome on fire. Some people say he set Rome on fire. Some people say that, he, that Rome just, you know, just burnt down. And he used that as an opportunity. He blamed the burning of Rome upon Christians so that he would have an opportunity to persecute Christians. You say, what does that prove? Here's, here's what this proves. Nero felt the need to persecute Christianity because Christianity was growing at such a rapid pace during the time of his reign as an emperor. Now, the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ was birthed during the reign of Caesar Augustus. History tells us that Caesar Augustus became emperor in 27 BC, 27 years before Christ. He was the emperor until 14 AD, so about the, he was the emperor till about Jesus was a teenager. From 14 AD to 37 AD, we have the Roman emperor Tiberius. Tiberius was probably the Roman emperor who was in charge during the crucifixion of Christ. From 37 AD to 41 AD, we have the reign of Roman emperor Caligula. From 41 AD to 54 AD, we have the reign of the Roman emperor Claudius. And from 54 A.D. to 68 A.D., two years before the destruction of the temple, we have the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. And here's all this proves, that about 21 years after to 35 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Nero felt the need, this is documented history, to persecute Christianity because of its rapid growth. You cannot get away from the fact, you cannot get away from the fact that within two to three decades after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there were so many thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of believers in the Roman Empire that Nero felt the need to bring persecution against them. And here's all I'm telling you, 20 years is not enough time to develop a myth. 20 years is not enough time to develop a legend. You say, how in the world could there be hundreds of thousands of believers within 20 years of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? It only happens one way. Eyewitnesses took the streets of Jerusalem. See, here's the thing. If I pulled 
just a stranger off the street and try to convince them of something that I witnessed with my own eyes, I may not be very successful at that. But if I took my wife, if I took my mom and my dad, my brother and my sister, people who know me, people who love me, people who trust me, people who know that I am of sound mind, and I tell them, look, I saw the resurrected Christ. And it's not just me. There's 500 of us. And those people went out and told their friends and told their loved ones. That is how the growth of Christianity exploded exponentially 20 to 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You say, well, it still requires faith, and I would never take that away from you. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. But all I'm telling you is this, that we as Christians do not believe in having faith in faith. We believe in having faith in Christ. And that is not a blind faith. It is a reasonable faith because of the eyewitness account. It is a reasonable faith because of the martyred disciples. It is a reasonable faith because of the rapid growth of early Christianity. Ah. I'm going to be ready to be done here in two minutes. I just want to read a couple of verses to you. You don't have to turn anywhere. But I want to read to you the verse that I read to you when we began this sermon. Isaiah 1.18. God says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Here's what I think is interesting about this verse. He says, let's reason together. And then he gives us a quote that we would use in regards to salvation. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. When God says that he wants to forgive you of your sins, that he wants to take away your sins, that he wants to wash away your sins, he begins that famous quote of your sins being as scarlet, but they shall be white as snow, though uh, though they be red like crimson crimson, they shall be as wool. He begins that quote by first saying, let us reason together. You say, why? Because salvation is through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But that faith is a reasonable faith. And I'd like to just end by just quoting to you from John 11 verses 25 and 26. These are words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are words that he said to his followers. John eleven twenty five says this, Jesus said unto her, here's what he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he asks her a question, which is the question of the ages. It is the question that has impacted our world Since the time of Christ, and it is a question that I hope you will wrestle with today, he said, believest thou this? And that's the question I have for you today. Do you believe? Do you believe in the resurrected Christ? It requires faith. I'm not going to lie to you. You must believe in Christ, but I just want you to know, I just want you to know that it is a reasonable Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that we do not have faith in faith. We have faith in Christ. And that is not a blind faith. Lord, we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. And more importantly than that, we thank you for the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Jesus would have just been a person who died, like everyone else. But the resurrection changes everything. We thank you for the resurrected Christ. And we thank you that we are not just asked to blindly believe, but it's a reasonable faith. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. And we're gonna have